0: Welcome to Beyond the Bio, Black History Month edition. I'm your host, Keith Bevins, a partner and global head of consultant recruiting at Bain. This is one of several episodes throughout the month of February focused on the work we've done for and with the Black community inside and outside of Bain over the years. I hope they're as much fun to listen to as they were to record. In addition to the episodes for Black History Month, we're also highlighting two of our previous episodes. The first was our discussion with Maria Gordian. Maria was our first guest on the podcast and the leader of our Black ERG. Maria also chairs Bain's DEI Council, and since taping that episode a year ago, Maria has been named to Bain's board of directors. The second podcast we'll repost and highlight is our conversation with Alex Nother. Alex discusses our efforts to address unconscious bias in the workplace, and it was a great conversation. I've known Alex for a really long time and really enjoyed hearing the work that he's doing. Time is a non-renewable resource, and I appreciate the time you spend listening to us. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you want to help us get better, just go ahead and send your feedback over. Thanks for listening. Joining me today for another episode in our Black History Month series is Ali Evans, a Bain alum who left in 2015 as an AC, and Anjare Hamilton, another Bain alum who left in 2015 as a consultant. Today, we'll talk with Ali and Angere about their journey to and with Bain and the role they played in changing the way we discuss social issues in the workplace. Ali and Angere, great to have you here.
1: Thanks so much. Excited to be here.
2: Thank you.
0: So why don't we start with backgrounds? Uh, Andre, tell us a little about yourself and, and your journey to Bain.
1: Yeah, sure. So I am from a small town in Tennessee. I went to Vanderbilt for my bachelor's degree and studied civil engineering and then did a bunch of internships across different parts of civil engineering, like structural, traffic, tried a few different things. And while I loved the classes and the like problem solving and the group work, I found that in practice, construction just moved a little slow. So I was not as engaged as I wanted to be. From there, I actually had a mentor that convinced me to get my master's straight after undergrad and talked about engineering management. And that led me to doing my management science and engineering degree at Stanford. And then from there, I had some friends that were applying to consulting jobs out of Stanford. It's like, what's consulting? What is this whole thing? And luckily, I decided to apply and got an internship with Bain. So I did that in my summer while I was at Stanford. And it was the most fun, both from a people perspective, but also just in terms of learning. And I definitely was not bored.
0: Yeah. And as as a fellow engineer, I would add that I had a similar experience as I was heading into grad school. I was like, so wait, what is consulting exactly again? And what do we do? And here we are. Ali, what about you? How did you end up at Bain?
2: Absolutely. So I grew up just outside of Detroit and spent there most of my life. But Went to Harvard for undergrad, I was very fortunate to go there. And like most kids out of Detroit, if you're good at math and science, you either become an engineer or a doctor. I didn't want to do either of those. And so I met a friend who had done a short one week internship program at Bain called the Bell or Building Entrepreneurial Leaders Internship. And he said, Ali, you might you might like this, the people are pretty cool and by the way they'll pay you to come work there for a week. So I said that sounds pretty good. And applied to do the Bell internship in Chicago. Actually, Keith, you were one of my uh, first interviewers. As you'll know, I probably didn't do too well, but I was able to trick you uh, in allowing me to come. And the Bell internship was great. You know, worked on a telecom client and found the project to be really interesting and so led to more internships at Bain and eventually coming full time.
0: And what did you do when you got to Bain, Ali? Because you stayed for a couple of years as an AC. Were you, were you in the same industry? You actually switched offices when you came back, right?
2: That's right. So, you know, Bain was pretty good to me. You know, although I had started off as a bell intern in Chicago, you know, as a kid growing up in Detroit, I always had a dream of making it out west to, to San Francisco and, you know, sunshine instead of snow. And so, you know, I asked to switch offices for my internship and. In, full-time and was granted that. And so when I joined as an intern in San Francisco, I first started off in our private equity group, doing diligence for private equity firms. And spent a summer doing that and had a lot of fun and it was pretty busy. And then when I came back full-time, I, I rejoined in the private equity group and spent time doing diligence across multiple industries, healthcare, technology, Uh, retail, you name it, as well as working with hedge funds. got to work on Bitcoin in 2013 before it was cool and learned a lot through that experience. After about a year of doing that at Bain, I then went into some of our more typical corporate client work and spent time across technology companies, big retail, sports retail names that you all would know, as well as as grocery and, and learned a lot.
0: Awesome. And Ajere, when you joined full-time uh, in San Francisco, what types of things were you working on? And, and what was that like? Because you joined at a pretty interesting time, I think.
1: Yeah. So when I was in ACI, it was in the midst of the downturn. And so it was, I think, Bain-level austerity measures, but coming from engineering internships, I was like, wow, we get some food and, and other perks during working hours. So it was still very exciting to me. And then in terms of what I was working on, my first case once I came back after being an intern to full-time was for biotech and designing a sales model, including their metrics and comp plans and pilot territories. And as I was reflecting on the different cases I had at Bain, a lot of them were in tech, media, and telecom, and they also were in sales and operations, which definitely prepared me for my future career. So I, I think mostly focused on technology and doing a ton of what is called results delivery, which is really taking the advice that Bain has put together and helping the clients implement that and bring that to reality.
0: So you kind of alluded to it there, but let's talk about uh, your decision to, to move to a different role. How long did you stay at Bain and, and what were you at Bain when you left and what did you leave to go do?
1: Yeah, I was at Bain for almost five years. I did not go back to get an MBA. So was straight through, started as a consultant, left as, or started as an associate consultant, left as a consultant. And one of the most impactful times of my life was thanks to Bain, which was getting to transfer to the Johannesburg office in South Africa. And Bain has a transfer program where you can do six months in one of the other offices. I knew I wanted to do that because I didn't study abroad in college. And so The offices that were good for English speakers were Johannesburg, Amsterdam, and Australia. And so I decided to do Johannesburg because it was, you know, a -a once-in-a-lifetime adventure. I had only planned on going for six months, but then I loved it and really enjoyed my case. And I extended and finally left after one and a half years. And the thing I loved about that case, it was working for a mine And even beyond what I had done previously in results delivery, we really were integrated in the organization. And I really felt connected to all the people that I was working with and really had skin in the game. And so that was kind of when I started to get the itch to see what it would be like to work in a company and be an operator. And so I I left Bain a year later, and that was in March of 2015.
0: Got it. And so you got that itch to be an operator. Where did you? Where did that land you?
1: Yeah. So it landed me at Square, and I was working on Caviar, which was which is a food delivery company, and they had just been acquired by Square. There were a few other former Bainies that had let me know that Caviar was moving over, and that there were really good jobs for, especially people with a consultant skill set. And so I started as a general manager for the East Bay. And it was, it was truly perfect because it was overseeing sales, marketing, and operations, so truly needed that kind of Swiss Army training. And it was wonderful. And I stayed there for almost six years and evolved through different GM roles, starting, like I said, in the East Bay, but then launched the Sacramento market and then moved to oversee the national corporate delivery arm, which was another general manager role. And yeah, we were acquired by DoorDash last year. So that was another adventure and something that Bain had given me a view into because of working on mergers and acquisitions. And from there really just realized like general management is the right place for me.
0: Right, and it sounds like you had the breadth of experience early on to get not just that itch, but a little bit of preparation. I'm sure it was a little trial by fire. How hard was the adjustment to make moving into a true general manager role with, you know, P&L responsibility from being an advisor?
1: Yeah, I always joked, there were quite a few of us from consulting backgrounds, but I joked that I didn't know how people that didn't have that training could do that role. And it was, so the adjustment from a Intellectual and training standpoint was very easy, right? Bain taught me how to ramp up on something really quickly, break down a problem, figure out the best possible solutions, and get it done. The only things that were challenging were the pace going to a high growth tech company after working with like larger companies in a consulting role. I remember once my boss, I had sent him an email to review before sending it to a restaurant partner that we were a really important restaurant partner. And he was like, yeah, this looks great, but why did you send this to me? Just send it to them. (laughs) So there were little things like that that I had to just be like, oh, okay, yeah, we we want, it's totally fine if I fail. And there were lots of failures and there continue to be lots of failures, but that was probably the only part that took a a second to get used to.
0: Now you stayed for five years, but Ali, I want to come back to you because you stayed for less time. Uh, before you moved on talk a little bit about you know that process and the decisions and what you were looking for with your professional development
2: Absolutely, so I was at Bain full-time for a little under two years left after the second year as an associate consultant and I think for me, you know, I was very early in my career and I really wanted to accelerate just the breadth of experience I had before eventually going back to business school I knew for me going to business school was something I wanted to do and was in the cards and kind of like Andre I really had this itch to see what it was like to be an operator and execute, you know, probably as a byproduct of being in San Francisco and the Bay Area, seeing lots of startups grow quickly and, and a lot of people have a lot of success. You know, I wanted to see if the venture back startup environment was the right one for me. And so I was fortunate after picking my head up out of Bain, had a few friends who were at a company called Oscar Health Insurance, which at the time was a two year old startup health insurer in New York. And they were looking for someone who had the strategy and financial chops to come in and, and really help out because, you know, the company at the time didn't have a CFO. And so I joined Oscar as a strategic finance teammate, and it was an eye-opening experience. You know, kind of like Andre said, we were very small, very resource-strapped, and so had to leverage a lot of the skills I had built at Bain, but learn to just execute and do things quickly without much oversight or insight from, from teammates.
0: And did you ultimately go back to business school?
2: I did, but but not not immediately after Oscar. So uh, again, trying to expand that breadth of experience. You know, after I had a a great run at Oscar, decided to try my hat as an investor. So, you know, I had the consulting and more strategy-oriented skill set. Had built a little bit of that operating muscle, and so then wanted to build that investor muscle and, and mindset of what does it take to be a great business owner. And so I joined a firm called Riverside Partners, which focuses on healthcare and technology investing and. Frankly, uh, the Bain connection really helped me to transition smoothly into that role. Uh, You know, a number of the partners at at Riverside are are former Bain folks. And so, you know, reached out to them and got to know them, you know, originally just another Bainie calling another Bainie and found a fit there and, and was fortunate there to build the real foundation as an investor. How do you think about financial analysis? How do you think about what drives both macro Outcomes as well as the micro outcomes uh, in in the company, and and how do you be a value added board member? So I had a great experience there before heading back to business school at Harvard.
0: Great, and you're back in private equity now, right?
2: That's right. And so uh, after two good years at, at business school, uh, you know, decided to go back and in, back into the investing role. And so I've been fortunate to be at, at Francisco Partners, which is a technology private equity firm, also invest in in credit and, and other securities as well. But a little bit broader platform based in San Francisco. And you know, I focus most of my time on on healthcare IT investing and have been fortunate to to leverage you know the skills across all the different experiences, hopefully to be a helpful partner to, to our companies. And so this year has been a busy year in the in the technology investing world, but we were fortunate to get, you know, hopefully three good deals done and, and I'm on a board of a couple of those companies and and feel grateful to, to be helping to build, build those platforms.
0: So thanks for the background. I always think it's helpful for people to hear a little bit about the different journeys people take at BAME, but one of the reasons I was excited to have both of you on the podcast, and I, I hadn't shared this with you when you were there, is is the session that you led back in 2014 in the San Francisco office. For those who don't know, that was similar to earlier in 2020. There was a lot of social unrest in the country and racial unrest in the country. That was on the heels of Mike Brown uh, being murdered in St. Louis, Eric Garner being murdered on camera in New York, which was, I remember going to the protests here in Chicago, you know, the hands up, don't shoot protests and the I can't breathe shirts and the feeling that people had that something needed to change. I'll also add on a personal note that one of the rules I had when I started at Bain in 96 was I'm not gonna talk about religion and politics at work. I really like the people that I work with and I didn't know that if we opened up that can of worms, I would continue to like the people that I worked with. But you all saw that a little bit differently. And held a session in the office to talk about the issues around Mike Brown and Eric Garner and some of the other things that were going on. And I thought it'd be helpful to talk a little bit about what was the spark there. And, Andre, maybe we'll start with you. But what was the spark that led to that session in San Francisco? And and talk about the process and the journey that you went through where you said, you know what, we're going to do this.
1: Yeah. So I think for me, I mentioned my time in South Africa. That was also a really important part of my development into the full human that I am and understanding kind of race and in a different way that I hadn't really been exposed to before that and growing up in a, in a small Southern town. And so I think when I came back and all of those situations that you mentioned were happening, I was a little bit, bit surprised that there wasn't more of a conversation around it. And I didn't think that it wasn't clear to me why that was, because I knew that my coworkers were super smart and empathetic. And I think I just realized they didn't really have the education or the understanding, I guess is a better word, to engage in that dialogue and that there might be some fear there. And I had also had been at Bain long enough to know that it really is a bottoms-up culture. And so if there was a group of us that were willing to have that conversation, there would definitely be support for that and also engagement from the top. And so those were kind of all the things coming together. And I'm interested to see and hear how Ali remembers it, because I think it started on one of the like chat channels of like, hey, should we... Should we have a conversation around this? Is it weird that we're not, so I'm interested to see your take or hear your take Ali.
0: Yeah, Ali, so why don't we, why don't we treat that cold call as the question on the table? Uh, how do you remember the 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 impetus for this session taking place?
2: Yeah, so you know maybe, maybe as a, just a point of context the the African American uh, black community of Bain I found to be pretty strong. Uh, There's something called the Blacks at Bain Group, or BABs, as we call it, and it's, you know, cross office. And, you know, frankly, for me, as a person who joined Bain, it was a really foundational experience to be able to connect with folks uh, who had, you know, at least one thing in common in terms of culture with me, really globally, but definitely within the United States, and especially with some senior leadership and mentorship. In San Francisco, however, you know, just our presence was smaller. You know, just San Francisco from a demographic perspective has fewer African-Americans. So I think in the office at the time, there may have been only four of us out of, call it 300 consulting staff and, you know, maybe five or six of us out of probably 500 total staff in the San Francisco office. And so, you know, we had a small chat like Andre mentioned where she just, I think she mentioned, she emailed or messaged all of us. And just said, hey, you know, what do you all think we should do around this topic? I remember for me, you know, it definitely is not an easy topic to take on, but particularly with Michael Brown, I just felt a really deep sense of empathy and connection and, and just knowing, frankly, that could have been me. I mean, you know, we're doing a podcast, so you all can't see me, but there was a time in life where I was a six foot two, 280 pound offensive lineman who looked not too different than Michael Brown. And so when I saw his picture on TV, you know, that easily could have been 16 or 17-year-old me. And, you know, I'm not too proud to say that, you know, oh, it would've been different for XYZ reason. No, it could have been me. And so I felt like that I wanted to be able to equip my colleagues with, you know, both the hard data around race in our country and and the uh, you know, the role that that plays and outcomes with interactions with police officers and and more broadly, but then to also bring it home, you know, this isn't about a person, amorphous person who you don't know uh, halfway across the country. It's about me 10 years ago before you met me and what, what I could potentially face. And so I think those are some of the things that motivated Andre and I to take
0: action. And that, and that notion is, is really hard. As, as somebody with two black teenage boys, um, you know, the, the images and the news stories when we hear about incidents like this just hit different. You know, Tamir Rice and, and Trayvon were my son's ages and every generation of us seem to have those examples. You know, when I was in college, it was the Rodney King uh, verdict, but it was also Latasha Harlins, which is you know one of the cases where I kind of went, oh, maybe the rules are going to be different and I need to behave differently because I'm not going to be treated the same. Um, and, and that resonates differently. And I think when it's abstract or something you just see on the news, it doesn't feel the same. And Angere, to your point, like we, we work with smart, empathetic people, but their exposure is different. And so... You take all of this and put it together, and you go to the office head next? How does that work?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, as I've mentioned, I'd, I'd been at Bain long enough at, from at that point to know that we would have the support. But I, I probably went to my manager at the time first and was like, hey, we Blacks at Bain wants to do this. Babs, as Ali mentioned, here's our draft of our slides very data driven, but then also, um, adding in our personal experiences and stories. And I think they were like, this is amazing. Um, let's just get sign off from, uh, Neil, who was the office head. And so ran it by him. He didn't hesitate. And so it was, we had all the green lights that we needed. And from there, I think we booked a way too small conference room that's like one of the things I vividly remember from when the actual conversation happened because I don't think we expected even though we knew people would come to the conversation with good intentions and support I don't think we expected the kind of participation that we we actually wound up getting.
0: Yeah, so Ali, what what do you remember about the conversation itself? Uh, I've I've heard about it, and I heard about it the next day because it was amazing, and it reverberated throughout the Babs community at, at Bain. But what do you remember about that?
2: Yeah, as Andre said, I think one of the most striking moments was just at the beginning of the of the conversation. You know, Andre and I, of course, we got there early and prepared and had you know had everything ready to go. But we really didn't know who was going to show up. You know, with all things in. Uh, work. You know, you send out the calendar invite and some people accept and respond, respond. some people don't. Uh, you can see the number of acceptances, but you know, there's only going to be, you know, some percentage conversion rate on how many people actually turn out. And this was an example where probably more people turned out than, than accepted the invite. And, you know, it was a standing room only room. And I think in the beginning, you know, it was people of every culture and frankly, global, <laughs> global. There were people from not from the US who were there because they were on transfer or what have you. And so, for Andre and I, staying at the front of the room, it was immediately incredibly humbling that that many of our colleagues would take you know time you know that being a consultant is not a slow job it's pretty busy, and wanted to share in that experience and and listen to us and I think you know it really set set the tone for the for the conversation and then you know during the conversation, as Andre said, we started with a very you know focused uh data based approach where we try to just explain to people. You know, here's the history. Here's the outcomes that are happening. And, you know, it's in a way that's very digestible and acceptable for, for Bain folks to internalize. And I think for, for a lot of people that brought down the, the tension in the room. So it's was like, okay, like, this is a way I understand. This is a way that I can take in new information, which was helpful.
0: If I could, there the I I actually looked through the slides because I still have that email uh, from afterwards. But the data that you're talking about, it was education disparities, employment disparities, uh, criminal justice disparities, right? Like talk, it, it was it was setting a baseline for things are different for different groups of people in the country, right? And was that eye opening for people?
2: Yeah, I I think I think it was. I, frankly, it was eye opening for me when I was preparing this live. You know, I think it's too easy in life to just assume that the way things, the way that they are, are the way that they always have been and they always will be, and that the reasons that they are that way are fundamental. And I think pulling the data together showed that for us, social hierarchy or socioeconomic hierarchy is multifaceted. There's multifactors at play, and some of them are zoning, some of them are education-based, some of them are access-based. And we should, these are things we can change uh, as a community, but you can't change things that you don't know or don't measure. And so I think for us it was really important to to lay that out for people in a way that was easy for them to, to consume.
1: Yeah, I think that as black people, we know a lot of these things to be true from shared experiences or our own experiences among the community. And to Ali's point, pulling together those data points in order to summarize years of systemic racism in a way that was able to be internalized by a group in a pretty small amount of time was eye-opening for me as well, where you knew these things, but after my training as a consultant and all the learning I had done since I was younger, and then actually seeing in the data objectively that this was true was was very eye-opening, I know, for me and I think also for those in the room that probably had some level of intuition of this was the case, but it's very different when you put it into graphs and, and the numbers, um, across all those different categories, like you mentioned.
0: Right. And, and there's the data part of the conversation. And as Bain folks, we, 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 we always enjoy a good slide and some data to dig into. Anjere and then Ali, you know, what was, what was the reception like, you know, what was the engagement like when you got into some of the more sensitive experience sharing part of the conversation?
1: Yeah, I have to be honest, I don't remember the details, I think, because it was such a nerve wracking experience. It was one of those, like, you're so fully present, and then you walk out like, what exactly happened? But I do remember folks ask questions, which was, was our goal. Like it was something that we had put even in the instructions to set up the conversation. And we wanted to make it comfortable enough for people to be able to ask the things that they didn't know. So that Afterwards, they would feel more empowered to learn more or to have conversations with others in their their networks. And so I remember people actually engaging and asking a lot of questions. I also remember, especially, I guess, across actually different tenures, but I especially remember some of the partners and senior managers coming up afterwards and and being very thankful and vulnerable about what they had learned and really wanting to have more impact going forward, so it was a very positive experience
2: yeah, and I would add for me, you know this was one of the first times I told the story about the first time I'd ever been pull- pulled over by a police officer, and I think externalizing those experiences in a way that you know I shared it with seventy plus people at one time was a pretty dynamic, uh, if not difficult experience, but at the same time for me it to help humanize and bring light to the experience and just and you know for, fortunately for me that experience ended fine versus for others it, it hasn't uh as we've seen in our recent history and so i think it was an opportunity for you know my colleagues and friends at bain to see you know how just recanting this you know frankly outcome that that ended more or less well uh how it impacted me personally and i was still emotional about it at the time it really i think brought brought deeper connection and, you know, I still remember, you know, there was a pretty senior partner who I had never worked with. We kind of locked eyes at the end of, of the discussion. And, you know, he just gave me the nod that he, he could feel what I was feeling at the time. And I think that was one of the most special parts about that experience. And then now, you know, fast forward, almost, I guess, six years later, I ran into that partner at an industry conference and, you know, we we caught up and, you know, it's we still have, you know, probably shared connection over just that one moment when, when we hadn't even worked together at, at Bain.
0: And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this as part of the series is, as I told you both when we talked before this, you know, this to me was one of the conversations that, that really changed the trajectory of the conversation and impact that we're trying to have as a firm. You know, I think I was not alone in having the, the no religion, no politics at work rule, But this conversation showed me that not only can you have the conversation, you can do it in a thoughtful, respectful way um, and get people to engage outside of their bubble in a way that I don't think we really did collectively. Um, Right after you did your session in San Francisco, at least two other offices held similar sessions and largely borrowed from your data slides. Obviously in context and shared experience, that was more customized, but you had laid a really great foundation for other offices to sort of take the baton and, and keep running. And I look back at what we did this past summer in 2020, where we, you know, closed down the Americas region for a day uh, for Juneteenth and had a day of learning, had a day of discussion, had a day of reflection. And I sort of traced the roots of that back to what was an AC and an SAC. In San Francisco, sort of deciding that this was important enough that we needed to talk about this at work with arguably the smartest people here in business in on the planet and, and proving that it could happen. And I sort of look back and say, wow, this really sparked something different for us. And in the years since, we've really taken that to an entirely another level, not just around Black Lives Matter and other things, but other social issues. And other sort of emotional issues, mental health issues. You know, we're doing a my story series now. I think I shared with you two since you've been gone, where people are sharing deeply personal stories about, you know, addiction in their families or mental health issues and depression, not just around racial and social issues, but around a much broader set of things that 10, 20 years ago you may never have talked about in the workplace. And I think we owe a, a lot of thanks to you two. Uh, for showing us that it can be done in a really tactful, thoughtful, impactful way. Um, And that lives on today. So I do want to ask you all as we we start to wrap, what did you do for Act 2? So in your current roles, are you leveraging this experience and this mindset that you had early in your careers to drive change in your organizations now? Um, maybe, Anjere, we can start with you. Now that you're a, a multi-time general manager in charge of organizations, you know how has this experience shaped the way you approach these types of issues today?
1: Yeah, I think that Babs, being part of Babs, and early on in my career was a great foundation to give me confidence and exposure, honestly, of how to bring my whole self to work and use my voice and my experiences to improve the experiences for other people in my community. And so it started just being as a member. And then I was one of the school diversity team leads to help with recruiting and training. And then when I left Bain and went to Square, it was early. It was pretty early in Square's lifecycle, so there wasn't yet a Black ERG or Employee Resource Group, and so grabbed a few folks, and we got that started, and evolved it over my my time there. And then once I joined DoorDash, was more senior at that time, and so was able to do fireside chats and host. We hosted Patrice Cullors, who is the founder of the Black Lives Matter movement or one of the founders. And then I, I didn't mention earlier, but I'm taking a new role at Fair and I'm I'll be leading the apparel business unit. So another general manager role. And that has all those experiences have all added up to where I definitely have a seat at the table, both from a business perspective, but also when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion issues. And so even though I haven't yet started that role, I'm already partnering with our head of people and talent on what are our our goals for 2021. And so I saw all of those as kind of building blocks and steps to get me to where I am today, where I am able to really use my voice.
2: Two things come to mind. The first one is, You know, in 2016, when unfortunately Philandro Castile and Alton Sterling uh, were killed uh, on back-to-back days in July, I'll never forget the feeling I felt coming to work on the third day, uh, July 7th, and literally no one else in the office knew that anything had happened. And I think, you know, for me, that just gave me a deep place of empathy that regardless of what happens in the world, whether it be COVID-19 or unfortunate tragedies, you know, in other areas of the world, just coming to work with empathy for how things that happen in life for your coworkers, you never know how much that can mean to someone. And so I, I try to start with that as a baseline, just when I interact with people, have have deep empathy, cause you, don't, you don't know what, you know, could be happening in the world that's affecting them. I think the second thing is more along the lines of some of the things that Andre was saying was, you know, now that it's, I've become more senior, and you know, frankly, now I'm the most senior black investor at, at our firm. I do think it's important for me to use my position for helping others and you know that can be as simple as being a mentor to younger folks whether it be in in college or in high school or or even starting their careers and and helping them think through what they do for example this summer you know i I had two interns working for me on small projects to give them some professional experience like helping them build their first investment pitches uh they're both black college interns and, you know, that was completely an extracurricular activity. They, they basically redid projects that I had done before on my own. But I think, you know, that's important like to, to invest in their professional development. On the flip side, there's you know bigger stages. You know, I'm on the board of three companies. And, you know, as we think about what executives we will interview and hire, it's important to me that we consider, you know, executives of all backgrounds inclusive of Black people. But, you know, whether it be different socioeconomic backgrounds, different sexual orientations, different genders, what have you, you know, those things are really, really important. And we, we need to, we need to make sure that a voice is heard at the board level that, Hey, this matters to us. And we, we track it, we report on it internally, and, and we, we make sure that it happens. So I think taking, you know, the everyday approach from an empathy perspective, and then both the bottoms up trying to build pipeline and top down from the board level, trying to just influence the conversation kind of takes it all. And, you know, you just try to do your best to, to, move things in a
0: positive direction yeah and, and what i what i heard and what both of you were saying is something we talked about at the black leaders forum where there was a time when we wanted to be in the room and then we celebrated because we were not just in the room but we were at the table and what we were reminding people is you're at the table because your voice needs to be heard you're not to be celebrated because you're at the table or in a position of influence you're to actually use that influence to drive the change that you want to see and it sounds like you're both doing that. And and I hope more people recognize that if they're at the table, their voice needs to be heard. And if you have those people at your table, their voice needs to be heard, which is something I, I think we sometimes celebrate a little bit too soon. And, and I, I applaud you both for sort of role modeling the behavior that we need people to do when they're in the room and at the table and in positions of, of influence. I'd like to thank you both for, for taking the time today. As I say, as I look back over 24 years at Bain, uh, the conversation that you led in San Francisco was a turning point in how we tackle really tough emotion, charge, emotional issues, and charge issues as a firm. Uh, and you two were a huge part of that. So I want to thank you both for the conversation today, uh, for plugging back in after so many years away. And it was great to catch up and just hear about the important contribution you made to Bain and how your journeys have continued since then. So thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Keith. And we appreciate your leadership too, especially when we were young ACs and didn't know any better. So we wouldn't have been able to do any of that conversation without the groundwork that you had laid as well.
0: Awesome. Thank you both. Thanks everyone for tuning in to Beyond the Bio. If you'd like to share a review or give us input on what you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd really like to hear from you. Please email our inbox at beyondthebio at bain.com We'll see you soon with some new episodes and thanks for listening.